the German reformer Martin Luther was not only a brilliant theologian and scholar, he was also apparently quite temperamental. So I'm not sure if you've heard any stories about him, but he had a quite an anger problem, it seems. He could get really excited about, about things. And then on the other hand, he would have periods of severe um, depression or even despair. And um, interestingly enough, he married his match. So um, one of the advantages of the Reformation was then getting to marry someone. So he married an ex-nun. Her name was Katharina von Bora. And she was actually quite as fiery as he was, known for her wit um, and, and brilliant humor. And one of my favorite stories uh, goes like this. On one occasion, Luther had been suffering from sort of a uh, series of depression, you know, week-long, two weeks. And she comes downstairs in the morning dressed entirely in black, as if she's going to a funeral. She's prepared for mourning, and she's all formal and done up and everything. And Luther kind of looks up and says to her, what's going on? What are you doing? Who died? And she says, oh, I thought God did, based on the way you've been acting this week. Sounds like something my wife would do. (laughs) Definitely something Martin Luther needed to hear. And what she's doing here is, uh, it is mildly humorous, but at the same time, it's also um, quite helpful because she is pinpointing a connection that exists between how we behave and what we believe, the actions that we take and what's going on in our hearts. And that's actually quite helpful because when you're struggling with something, when you're in a depression or when you're in a despair, sometimes what happens is you become so focused on the um, actual behavior, the things that you're doing, that you can't see what what's in your heart actually motivating those behaviors and motivating those actions. Let me give you a couple of examples. Say um, that you get laid off or you're unemployed. And that's the situation that you're in, and you respond with fear and with anxiety and with complaining. And um, sometimes the worst advice you could get in that situation is either to tell yourself or to have somebody else tell you, hey, just stop complaining. Just stop being afraid. What you need to do is find out what you believe about God that's prompting you to fear and prompting the complaining. So you have to ask yourself, what's a more difficult question, a less superficial question? Do I believe that God will provide for me? Do I believe that he's faithful to his promises? Do I believe that he will be with me even until the end of the age? Or say you are filled with bitterness, to take another example, because someone who you love continually hurts you repeatedly, and it's just more than you can bear. And again, you might be tempted to say, I just need to forgive. I just need to forgive. I've just got to start forgiving. And your counselors are saying, forgive, forgive. But it's very difficult to do unless you look in your heart and ask yourself, what do I believe about a God who forgives? What do I believe about what God is telling me regarding forgiveness in my own heart and how that motivates me to forgive someone else? You see, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that the Bible teaches basically two things which cause us to not believe. In the sermon today, we're going to focus mostly on Thomas, that section of the middle um, that Arlene read. And these are the two things. Number one, you are limited by virtue of the fact that you are human. Okay? God's the creator. You're the creation. So there's all sorts of things in this life that you just can't see because you don't have enough information. So you're wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> I hate to be the one to break it to you. Sorry. Secondly, and this may be the more problematic thing, 
Not only do you have a limited view, but you are willfully rebellious and resisting the the truth that God has presented to you. So you have a limited view. I can't see all those things. And not only that, you are rejecting what God is telling you because of the fall and because of your sinful nature. So basically that's a pretty bleak picture. It's not a pretty picture. The good news is it's a lot of good news. One, one bit of good news is the fact that um, you will find many people in this same situation and you're basically in good company. I've, I've been reading um, through the book of John in preparation for the sermon this week and for the sermon next week, and the disciples are filled with unbelief. It's amazing how little they comprehend and how little they understand about what Jesus is trying to do. You should go back this week and read one gospel all the way through and just see how many times everybody is saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, they have no idea what he's saying. It's not only the disciples, it's everybody else, you know, Nicodemus. So I have to get back in my mother's womb. And then the next chapter, you've got water that if I drink it, I'll never be thirsty again. And you're, I mean, just constantly, they're trying to figure out what it is that Jesus is saying. I think we take for granted that we should understand what he's saying. And Thomas is an interesting case, okay? You will not find Thomas, uh, much about Thomas in three synoptic gospels. You find more about him in John than we do anywhere else. And he appears three times. The first time is in chapter 11. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to go, go to Lazarus and and heal him. And then we are going to go, I'm going to go on to Judea and into Jerusalem. And basically Thomas knows, Hey, Jesus is going to get killed because he has enemies who oppose him. And this is what Thomas does in, in chapter 11. He says to our disciples, Hey, let's go with him that we can die with him. That's his perspective on Jesus's ministry about halfway through. Okay. And then he appears again in John 14, Um, verse five. And Jesus says, I am going to be glorified. I'm going into heaven to be with my father and I'm going to prepare a place for you guys. And I want you to follow me. And Thomas says this, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Okay. See, he's aware of his own limitations, but that just even being aware of it doesn't help because it just frustrates him. And he's, he's looking at the situation from a human perspective. And by the time we get to Thomas, In John chapter 20, he is clinging to unbelief. He is clinging to his limited perspective. He basically is saying, Jesus is dead. That's the obvious fact. The even more obvious fact is this. Don't take this for granted either. Dead people don't come back to life. I will never believe. Okay. And he's not singular because he has doubts. He's representative because he has doubts. Okay. Don't set him so far apart from the other apostles um, that you think he is somehow special. He is the representative of, of, of all of us who are doubting and fearful. But John, in that scenario, makes an astonishing claim. Okay. John says that the risen Jesus actually came back to life and appeared to Thomas, that Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead. And what this means is, this means that there is something that is eternal that has broken into our temporal world that we live in. There's something that is divine that is broken into the human. There is something that is unlimited, which should transform the way that we think in our limited human understanding. Something greater than human understanding has come. Something greater than unbelief has come. The risen Savior has come. And any attempt to understand Jesus that stops short of the resurrection 
does not do justice to the full picture of the story. It doesn't really see who he is. He has done so in one sense. The resurrection is the remedy for unbelief. Only after the resurrection does Thomas say, Jesus is my God and my Lord. And because Jesus has in fact risen from the dead, he is calling you today. He's calling you to believe that he is both God and Lord. So what I want to do today, what I want to look at is I want to to show you three things about the risen Jesus. that I hope you find encouraging and I hope you find helpful. I think it's appropriate, if I can uh, kind of back up for a second, it's appropriate to continue talking about the resurrection. We've kind of sprinkled that throughout the service already, but don't let Easter rush, rush past you. Let's take a couple more weeks to think um, of what this resurrection actually means. Here's the first thing. The risen Jesus approaches people in their unbelief. Let me, let me put that in second person. The risen, the risen Jesus approaches you in your unbelief. In fact, the resurrection itself exposes unbelief. If you don't identify yourself as a Christian, then the resurrection, if you're here today with us and you are not a Christian, the resurrection may be for you sort of what I would call the sticking point. You you may be able to say, hey, Jesus is a great teacher. I like some of the things he said. Or you may be able to say, hey, Jesus, uh, I I appreciate what he was trying to do, but I'm unwilling to go that far. Okay? I invite you to reconsider. I invite you to make sure that you are thinking about the resurrection in the way that the Bible is actually talking about the resurrection. So hang with us. But uh, the other thing is that I, I feel like Christians can also undervalue the resurrection. Now, hang with me here. I feel like we get so focused on the cross, what Jesus has done on the cross for my sins, what Jesus has done for the cross of my sins, that sometimes we forget the resurrection. For example, think of how many hymns and songs have been written about the crucifixion and then compare that to how many are written about the resurrection. When I survey the wondrous cross beneath the cross of Jesus, I could probably call to mind numbers of songs about the crucifixion. And then we have like the four that we always play on Easter. And I love the, I love the four resurrection songs. Or think of Christian art is the same way. Think of how many crucified Jesuses you have seen in art and how many resurrected Jesuses have you seen. But you too can have a limited view of Jesus and who he is if you are not focusing on and thinking about the resurrection. See, Paul says, um, without the resurrection, Christianity collapses. Without the resurrection, your faith is in vain. Without the resurrection, you would still be trapped in your sins. See, if there was not a resurrection, then Jesus died as a miserable failure. So his teaching doesn't mean very much. And if the resurrection is just symbolic, there's no power in it to free you from your sins. Go home. So we're going to look at these resurrection appearances. 
Um, the gospel, the story of Thomas takes place in the context of a number of post-resurrection experiences. Okay, so the appearances are as important as the empty tomb. Both are important. You see, what I want you to see is that what these guys are setting out is what they believe to be historical fact, not a symbol. You see, without the empty tomb, without the empty tomb, you could think that the disciples are just seeing a ghost or a spirit of Jesus, of a dead Jesus. But without the appearances, you could think that Jesus' body was simply stolen. You see, you have to have the empty tomb and the appearances, and the gospel writers are making it clear, Jesus has done what no man has ever done. He walked into death, he turned around, he walked back out, and people just don't do that. And it wouldn't make sense for them to make this up anyway in the ancient Near East. No one thought that resurrection was possible or even desirable in the pagan world, if you read all the Greco-Roman literature that's there, no one th- they thought, yes, you disappear, yes, you become a star, yes, you become an angel, yes, you become a vapor, but not that one man has his body reanimated and returns to life. And the only people that had any concept of a resurrection were the Jews, and that was the end time when everything was made right, not that it happened to one man. But the biblical authors intentionally record these encounters to show that it did happen to one man. And we see Jesus appearing to Mary, we heard about last week. We see him appear to the disciples. We see him appear to Thomas. We see him appear to the two men on the road to Emmaus. In First in Corinthians 15, Paul says he, re, he appeared to 500 men. And there's apologetic value there, too, because Paul says, hey, some of them were even alive. You can go, you, the, the people who were originally hearing these stories could have gone and talked to them to find out what their um, take was on this. But what really struck me this week um, was not only the historical realism that's present in these accounts, it was actually what they tell us about Jesus, okay? It's what they tell us about the person of Jesus. See, I think God wants us to see not only that Jesus has risen, but what kind of risen Savior he is. And I noticed that Jesus approaches each person according to his or her personality. This is really interesting. Like, go back and look at this this week. So Mary is weepy and emotional. Remember last week? And what does he do? He speaks her name tenderly and calls her to love him just like Steve reminded us last week. Thomas, well, think of the disciples. They are huddled in a room, afraid that they're the next to die. And what does he do? He speaks peace to them. He meets them right where they are. And think of um, Thomas. He's doubting. And what does Thomas get? He gets to see the resurrected body of Jesus. Next week, we'll talk about Peter, who's filled with guilt and shame. Jesus cooks him breakfast, which is really cool, and says, I accept you. I accept you. Come to me. Your, your shame need not cover you anymore. And these things, these things amaze me um, because it means that Jesus, who, look, he entered your sin and misery on the cross. Okay, I think we've got that, right? He entered sin and misery. He took darkness that we couldn't imagine upon himself on the cross. But it means that the resurrected Savior is willing to do the same thing. Even after having risen, he's going to say, I will enter into your dark places. I will enter into your unbelief. And what that means is that Jesus is not daunted by your unbelief. He's not surprised by your unbelief. He is not um, shocked by some secret or dark sin that you're holding on to. There is no place that he will not go. There is no place that Jesus will not go, which should compel you. To admit your unbelief, acknowledge your unbelief, acknowledge your sin in the places where you are resisting him. Who else? We're going to sing in a a bit. Um, 
the secret sins and misdeeds dark is a little verse from, um, from the depths of woe. Who else would see your secret sins and misdeeds dark and appear to you and invite you in, offering you freedom rather than condemnation? So Jesus appears, he approaches you in your unbelief. Here's the second thing. Jesus not only appears and approaches, he also confronts unbelief. I mean, Jesus, he not only confronts, he dis, it wouldn't be too much to say he dismantles unbelief. Watch this. Watch what Jesus does. Okay, let's look back at the actual text. We, we should get to that. Um, let's look at um, John 20, 24 through 31. Okay, Jesus has already appeared to his disciples, um, but Thomas wasn't with them. And do, do you pick up on, even as an aside, the historical realism that's here? See, this isn't a myth. This isn't, like, there's no three-headed dogs. There's no magical swords. There's no, like, sea foam turning into goddesses. There's guys that are scared and have no idea what's going on. That's exactly what would happen if somebody came back into this room and said, I've risen from the dead. Okay, and there's 10 guys who don't know what's going on. And there's one man who says, no, I will not believe dead people don't come back to life. And that's the point of what he says in verse 25. Okay, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You see, he's earned a reputation as doubting Thomas which is a little bit unfair because basically it's not like, okay, he's not demanding proof. Who would he be demanding proof from if he believes that Jesus hasn't actually risen? That doesn't really make sense. What he's doing is he's calling to their minds the specific things that made Jesus dead. Nail marks, cross, spear. He's saying that Jesus is dead and the dead people don't raise from the life, raise back to life again. But Jesus confronts him. Jesus appears to him. Look at verse 27 at Jesus' response. Jesus appears among them. He says, peace be with you. And then he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And I want to to show you a couple of things about how he confronts him. First of all, he confronts him personally. Okay, get your mind around this. I've been thinking about this all week. This um, invitation, I mean, he's inviting him to touch his wounds. It's so personal that it's it's, um, shockingly intimate. Do do you get that? What, What he's asking him to do? The other disciples that are around him, it's kind of like they're reading somebody else's love letters. Or like, it reminds me of um, one of my favorite short stories is a short story called Good Country People by Flannery O'Connor. And in it, there's a woman who has a prosthetic fake leg. Anybody read that story? Only a few English majors. (laughs) Go home. (laughs) Your other assignment is to go home and read this story. This is my favorite short story of all time. But there's a woman who has a prosthetic leg and a con man basically lures her up into the top of this barn. Um, and that you think he's going to seduce her or rape her or something. But what he does is he asks her to show her where the leg attaches. And, like, it's so intimate. It's so personal, this wound that she has and the fact that he wants to touch it, that in the story it's, like, worse than as if he had seduced her. It's so intimate and, and uncomfortable. Okay, and that's the sort of thing that's happening here with what Jesus is doing. He's saying, touch me in the place where I have been hurt the most, but the effect, the effect is humbling. It's not humiliating. 
Okay, which is amazing. See, it's so humbling that most commentators think that Thomas didn't even do it. You can't tell from the text whether he runs up and touches him. It seems like he's just, he comes, comes undone. He's shocked by this intensity. But the point is this. It's not heavy-handed. Jesus didn't destroy Thomas. He humbled him, bringing him near to him in preparation for the mission that he's going to have to undergo in a couple weeks. Come near me and believe. The second thing I want you to see about this, this confrontation is that he confronts him with the big picture. He confronts him with the entire gospel. He confronts him with the complete version of the story. And that's why, knowing that the scars remain on his hands and on his feet, is significant. See, the complete picture, what you have in Jesus' risen body is like the gospel in a microcosm. You have Jesus dead, that's why you see the scars, Jesus buried, and as Paul says, Jesus risen on the third day according to the scriptures. On the one hand, the risen Jesus has a real physical body, and that has all sorts of implications. That has, that has crazy implications. It means that the creation is good. It means that your bodies matter. There's all sorts of things that we don't have time to talk about today. It also means that if he can be raised, you can be raised. If death can be defeated, then you can live on after death. And if you don't need to fear death anymore, you don't need to fear all those things that are associated with death and that lead up to death. You don't need to fear sickness. You don't need to fear cancer. You don't need to fear pain. You don't need to fear suffering because they're all temporary. Jesus Christ, the risen one, is making all things new. He is in the process of making all things new. On the other hand, on the other hand, He always appears as the lamb that was slain. My favorite, one of my favorite Bible passages of all time is Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, John sees a vision of the heavenly throne room. Okay, this is the perspective that we've all been waiting for. What is happening in heaven? And there, 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 there's basically some goings on and they say, who can unravel this scroll? And the scroll is all of human history with all the names of those who will be restored and ransomed and forgiven. And he's expecting the lion of Judah to come and be able to do it. And if you, if you've read this, you remember what happens instead. It's not the lion that appears. It's a lamb who was slain. You see, Jesus, even in the resurrected state, will always identify to you, will always relate to you as the one who died as a sacrifice on behalf of your sins. He always was the lamb that was slain. He always is and always will be. Your standing before God was always determined, is determined now, and will always be determined based upon the sacrifice that Jesus has made and your standing and your, you're being united to him, this lamb that was slain. Jesus alone makes a way possible for us out of our darkness. And what that means is when you think of the crucifixion, think of the resurrection. When you think of the resurrection, think of the crucifixion. They can't be separated. They go hand in hand, both together. Otherwise, you're missing part of the story. And missing part of the story doesn't make sense. It's sort of like watching a suspense thriller and stopping 15 minutes early. Can you imagine watching Usual Suspects and cutting it off 10 minutes early before that last little bit? I'm sorry. I know I need to watch some new movies. Um, It's like reading a detective story and just quitting a chapter beforehand. It doesn't make sense. Um, I want to share with you. I, 
I overheard that <laughs> it's limited. It's limited. I overheard my daughter and my son having this. Let me give you a little illustration of our limited perspective, having a conversation the other day and they were doing the usual one upmanship. So kids are always like, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to beat you up and I'm going to get my dad to beat you up. And my dad has a tank. And you know, did you used to do that when you're on the playground? Yeah. Okay. My dad's tank can beat your tank. Um, and so here's what was happening. They were, Aiden was saying, okay, let's play that we're superheroes and I've got these certain superpowers. And so he started listing them, you know, I've got invisibility. I can see through walls. And Abby's like, okay, I got this. I've got that. And so they keep going back and forth. And finally, Aiden says something like, I have every superpower in the world <laughs> and you could <can> have none. <laughs> and now Abby's really clever. So you guys have to get to know her. Abby said, well, Aiden, that's impossible because you have never been to every place in the world, so you can't possibly know all the superpowers that exist. <laughs> She's seven. <laughs> it's brilliant thinking, though. Brilliant thinking, right? Because what she's saying is, hey, Aiden, hey, Aiden, you've got 14 superpowers because those are the only superpowers you know about. But when you open up and realize that in the world there are thousands of superpowers, you know what it means? All of that invincibility that you felt comes crumbling down. All of the strength that you thought you had comes smashing down because there's actually thousands out there that you have never been able to explore. She was basically saying, you're not God. You're not God. You haven't explored to the ends of the earth, into the reaches of the universe, um, to know what is there. So once you have spotted unbelief in your life, once you have realized your limitations at the root of your sinful behavior, start to challenge it in that way. Let Jesus confront you. You'll be amazed at how quickly your rational explanations, your um, elaborate self-justifications, your systems of interpretation come crashing down. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus dismantles worldviews. He really does. He dismantles worldviews. And that's what he means when he says to Thomas, don't disbelieve, but believe. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Okay, here's the third thing. The risen Jesus calls you to respond. See, what could Thomas say? My Lord and my God. What can Thomas say? What could he say? That's all he's got left. My Lord and my God. And that statement brings us to the climactic moment of John's gospel. This is amazing, okay? Back in John's prologue, right? John said, if you know John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is God. He says, that's what I'm going to prove to you. And then while you're reading the gospel of John, you see like people trying to get it. I think I get it. No, I don't. I don't have it. I think I get it. Before Abraham was, you're what? I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I'm not sure. And they're coming closer and coming closer and coming closer. And then he dies and then he's risen. But only after the resurrection do you, do you return to where the gospel began with a climactic statement that says, Jesus is divine. That's how he has the power to do this. Jesus is the Lord worthy of submitting to. That's how he has the power to do this. In the beginning, the word was God, my Lord and my God. Thomas's transformation from unbelief to belief is the climactic moment. It's, it's the climactic confession of who this Jesus is that we are called to worship. So what should you believe about Jesus? I mean, do, do you get the weight of that? I mean, you've got a Jew. This is a Jew in the first century who's saying it's okay to be a monotheist and still say to Jesus, you're my God without committing idolatry. 
and without committing blasphemy. That's amazing. That's unheard of. That's unbelievable. That's what he's doing. And so here's the two things I want you to keep in mind. Since he's God, you believe by worshiping him as you would God. You worship Jesus as you would God. And all the ways that we describe God apply to him. Infinite, eternal, unchangeableness, being, spirit, power, wisdom, holiness. Those things apply to Jesus. And all the glory that you would give to God belongs to him. He's worthy of power. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of honor. Because he created all things and he sustains all things by his powerful word. You see, what we're doing here, I started with behavior and led you to belief. But there's even something fundamental underneath the beliefs, right? Which is worship. What you worship determines what you believe and how you behave. You will believe in something because you were created to worship the creator. And if you don't worship him, you're going to worship something that he's created. Those are your two options. You don't have any others. And that might be power. That might be acceptance. It might be approval. It might be relationships. But he's calling you to turn aside from those things. Turn aside from those things and set your heart upon the creator. Find him in the risen Jesus. And if you are struggling today with some secret sin, if you're struggling just with some difficulty, one of the best places to start is with worship. So often we try to tackle some sin head on and just fight against it and beat it down. But you need to turn away from it and look to the risen Savior and worship him. That will transform your attitude towards that sin. Start with worship. Start with worship. Secondly, since he is Lord, he is God, so worship is God. He is Lord. Submit to him as Lord. Okay? He demands not just belief, but action. See, the one who created the universe reveals himself all throughout the Old Testament as Yahweh, the God who does amazing things in history. So he says, I created the entire universe. I could do what I want to with it. And what he does with it, it says, I'm going to enter into it to amazingly save people. I'm going to enter into it by calling Abraham. I'm going to part the Red Sea. I'm going to have David set up and an entire people for myself. And John the Baptist doesn't just say, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, I'm sorry. He doesn't just say, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is coming. He's God. He's Lord. Respond accordingly. And so you're going to, you're going to submit to what you worship. You've may, may even heard people say you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. And I don't have time to, to sort of um, go through all the nuances of that in detail, but sin is a cruel master. Sin is intent on destroying you, but Jesus is calling you to turn from your sins and to repent, to rest on him in faith for salvation. So let me conclude with this. Um, Arlene read that entire bit, um, including verses 29 through 31 and verses 29 through 31. Um, I had her, I won't read them again, but I had her read those verses because John wants his readers to know that belief in Jesus extends beyond that apostolic era. Okay. It's not just those who saw him who witness and testify, but even after they're gone, John knows there's going to be future generations. He's thinking about you. He knows that you are the ones who have not yet seen, but have still believed. And he says, you will be blessed. And then he tells us the entire purpose statement for, his, for, 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 the, for the whole gospel. He says, he has written these things, I guess I will read this, so that you may believe 
that you may have, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus is calling you today to believe in him as risen Lord. He's calling you to acknowledge your unbelief. He's calling you to see him approaching your unbelief. He's calling you to confront and challenge your unbelief as he dismantles it and to replace your unbelief with faith, turning away from all of your other lovers and setting your heart on Jesus alone. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that at Liberty Church, our confession would be my Lord and my God. I pray that um, those who are struggling in unbelief would see that you come to those who are in their struggle, that this is a place where we can struggle. And I pray that you would grant the gift of faith um, to all who are present today. And I just pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.